thou my vision. Well, may that good singing this morning lead us into our study of God's word. And if you would, if you have a Bible with you this morning, we do have Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have one this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 through 19. The last three passages in a row, two weeks ago, last week, and this week, have all dealt with suffering, as Peter really focuses on this subject. He wants us to know that we will suffer, and he wants us to know how to suffer for Christ, for his name, for his sake, and for his glory. And in this passage, verses 12 through 19, he says, Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, our first point this morning is fiery trials. Last Sunday morning, we looked at Peter's instruction on how to live for Christ in an increasingly secular and even hostile culture. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that to be a believer in Jesus Christ in this world, whether at the time that Peter wrote or today means that you will go against the current, you will swim against the tide, and we must do so with the mind of Christ. Last week, we learned how to live for Christ in that hostile culture. And Peter said, if you remember last Sunday morning, the end of all things is at hand. The consummation of all things, ending in the return of Christ, which is not an end but a beginning in, in and of itself, that is what we are to look forward to. Brothers and sisters, Peter is saying, know that the end of all things is at hand. One of the hallmark characteristics, one of the foundation attitudes of the entire Christian life is that we are to live in anticipation of the return of Christ. That is to be on our hearts and on our minds at all times. And so Peter then said, therefore, and listed four things that we looked at last week. 
First, we are to be a people devoted to prayer. Second, we are to love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Third, we are to serve one another with the spiritual gifts God has given to each of us. And fourth, we are to live our lives for the glory of God. In everything we think and say and do, we are to live for the glory of God. Well, that brings us to today's passage. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, has been called the summit of the book of 1 Peter as he instructs his readers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Now, next week, we will start to look at chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 could really be called a postscript. It is a wonderful chapter with much to learn from it, but it is really Peter saying, here are some final thoughts. Throughout the book of 1 Peter, the theme has been, we have a great Savior, and we have a great salvation. Therefore, be willing to suffer and suffer well for your Savior. And that comes to a summit. That comes to a mountaintop here in this section of Scripture. So in a sense, the meat, the heart of the book is really chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 19. And so he says, Beloved, brothers and sisters in Christ, you precious ones who know Jesus as your Savior, do not, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now I want to clarify something here. Peter is speaking specifically about the opposition and hostility we face at the hands of those who oppose the Christian faith. That's the kind of suffering that is really addressed in the book of 1 Peter. Now, some of you here this morning may be suffering from a physical illness. Some of you may be suffering because you've lost a loved one or just life circumstances aren't going well. Maybe in your life, just due to some circumstances, you feel like your life is kind of falling apart. There are things to be learned. And what I'm going to share with you this morning. Things that can apply to all suffering. However, however, that's not the suffering that Peter is addressing here. Peter is specifically addressing the opposition and hostility that we face because we live in a fallen world, because people oppose us, because we belong to Christ, because we live in a hostile culture. Do not forget as I go through this message that those to whom Peter writes were enduring persecution and the great persecution under the emperor Nero was on the horizon. There was a great cloud, a great black cloud on the horizon for the people of God living in the Roman Empire at this time. And Peter says to his readers and certainly to us today, we are not to be surprised by intense opposition. Boy, if there is a classic passage on this, and one is our own culture grows increasingly hostile, I think we need to come back to 
over and over again. If there is a classic passage to me, it has to be the Gospel of John chapter 15 and verses 18 through 20. Jesus, speaking to his disciples shortly before his own death, says to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Oh, folks, we need to remember this. If this culture that we live in today hates us, and many do, you need to remember it hates you because you belong to Jesus. That's why it hates you. We use labels today. We say of Christians like us that we are conservative evangelical Christians or we would say that we are conservative Bible-believing Baptists. And there is a place for those terms, but that I just want you to know that's not why they hate us. That's not why they oppose us. They oppose us because we belong to Jesus. Jesus says, if the world hates you, I want you to know it hated me first. If you are of this world, if you love this culture, if you go out and agree with everything being said out in the culture today, if you go with every phrase or belief in the God of political correctness, you know what? They'll love you. They'll love you. If you want to love this world, they will love you in return. But Jesus says, you are not of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. And he says, I want you to remember, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And that's so important for us to remember. It is because we belong to Jesus, because we identify with him, that they oppose us and even hate us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says to his young apprentice, Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 John 3.13, John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. And Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. God is using this opposition. He is using this hatred against us to test us. And we're going to look at that more a little later in the message, but that is so important. God uses fiery trials to test the genuineness of our faith in Christ. He uses these trials, this opposition, to grow us in Christ. He uses these fiery trials to find out, is your trust in this world or is your trust in me? You know what this is? This is the cost of discipleship. To be a follower of Jesus in any era of history, including our own, is not easy. It will cost you to be a disciple, and it must be a cost that you are willing to endure and willing to pay. Well, that leads us to our second point. How to endure for God's glory. 
how to endure this, these fiery trials for God's glory. So we're not to be surprised. We're not to think it's something strange. So how do we endure? And Peter gives us three very practical things in this passage of how to endure fiery trials for God's glory. First, first, rejoice that you are suffering for the sake of your Lord and Master. Rejoice that the one who died on the cross for you, who rescued you from eternal damnation, who is now your Savior, who is now your Master and your Lord, rejoice that you get to suffer for him. Look at verses 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We rejoice because we get to share in Christ's sufferings. Now, I think this goes without saying, but I do want to clarify it so we all have a, the same understanding. He is not talking about his suffering on the cross per se. Our suffering does not earn our salvation. His sufferings on the cross did everything to accomplish our salvation. So we are not suffering, talking about suffering for salvation. We are talking about a suffering as a result of our salvation. Okay, we are talking about the fact that Jesus belonged to the Father, that he lived a righteous life, that he was a pure and holy man, and therefore people opposed him, and people hated him, and it's because of that that we suffer with him. Because we preach, teach, and witness in his name, because we stand and identify ourselves with him, that is the sense in which we are sharing in his sufferings. And notice at the end of verse 13, to go along with last week's message, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What a great thought. Here's, here's the thought. It may be hard right now, but you're only here for a short period of time on this earth. This earth is passing away. If you stand for him rather than love this world, if you are willing to identify for him no matter what happens to you, when he comes to take you home to be with himself, when you are in eternity for millions and millions of years, I guarantee you, I 100% guarantee it, guarantee it this morning, you will say it was worth it all. It was worth it all. You are going to rejoice and be glad when he returns, when his glory is revealed. And then in verse 14, it says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, notice that the word spirit there is capitalized. It is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the glory of Christ. It is the Holy, of Holy Spirit that enables us and gives us the ability to live our lives for the glory of God. And so, and then he says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God 
lives in you through the person of Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the, the phrase here, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, is actually a reference to the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament where the glory of God would come and rest upon the tabernacle and then subsequently upon the temple, where God's presence would actually rest upon the place of his presence. And do you know where that glory resides now? On you. I mean, that's incredible. That, that, that's almost hard to fathom. The Shekinah glory of the Old Testament now rests upon you because the presence of the Lord is with every believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you grab a hold of that, and you are God's, and you belong to Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, oh, you're blessed. You are blessed. Wow. Jesus, name above all names the only perfect man to ever walk this earth, God in human flesh, our Savior, our Lord, our salvation. If you suffer because of his name, you are blessed. You are blessed because that means you're his and you belong to him. In Acts chapter 5, it's a great passage where the apostles are speaking in the name of Jesus, and they are dragged before the ruling Jewish council. And they are beaten, and they are told never to speak again in the name of Jesus. And in Acts 5.41 it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then you know what else? They, then you know what they did? They went around speaking in the name of Jesus. They could not obey the counsel but notice they rejoiced they rejoiced that they were counted worthy that God would consider them worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus and then we think of that classic classic passage in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 where Jesus says to his disciples to us blessed Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now notice this, because of me. Because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Folks, do you see, when we suffer and face opposition for the name of Christ, we stand. We stand with the people of God that goes all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. Rejoice. First of all, rejoice that you are suffering for the sake of your Lord and Master. Second, second, allow your suffering to be a time of honest self-examination. When you go through fiery trials, because people are opposing you, whether it be at work or in your extended family or in just in the, in, in the culture at large, let God use it to refine you. Let him use it to reveal to you that you are truly his child. Let him use it to cause you to grow in him. Let him use that fiery trial 
to make sure that your trust is in him and not in something else. In verses 15 through 18, Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If you sin and do wrong and suffer for it, you are not suffering for Christ. Okay, if you are suffering this morning, because of your own sin and poor choices, that's not suffering for Christ. That's suffering the consequences of your own sin. And notice what he says, if anyone, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And then he adds something interesting here. Every commentary I read focused on this. He adds the word meddler. I mean, when we think of suffering for wrongdoing, yeah, I can see murder. I can see being a thief. I can see being an evildoer, but a meddler? You know what the term meddler means here? It's one who gets involved in the, in the affairs of others when he has no business being there. So, this pertains to any kind of sin. Not just a specific list, but any kind of sin for which you might be suffering. We have a term today, it doesn't come from the Bible, but it really applies here. It's an ancient term. It's called, it's none of your business. You know that term? That's what Peter's saying here. Don't get involved in things that are none of your business. There's a place for loving and gentle help to someone to grow in their Christian faith. And if there's some overt sin to rebuke and correct but when it comes to people's private affairs, we are not to be gossipers. We are not to stick our noses where they don't belong. One writer said this, this may be the number one cause of conflict within churches today is people who are meddlers. And if people dislike you and people have a problem with you because you're a meddler, I just want you to know you're not suffering for Christ. But then he says this in verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Well, that's different. If you're suffering because you're a Christian, well, that's a good thing. That is a very good thing. In a couple of the commentaries that I, that I would work through this week, interesting background study on the name or title Christian. This might surprise you. But the actual word Christian is only found three times in the New Testament. The believers in the very earliest days of the church were called believers. They were called disciples. And in the very early days of the church, they were called those who belonged to the way. And when they began to be called Christians, initially it was used as a derogatory term, a negative term, a derisive term. Because the people in the Roman Empire were followers of Caesar. They were said to belong, there was actually a term for it, those who belonged to Caesar. 
And what would people say in the Roman Empire? They would say, Hail Caesar. And all of a sudden there is this group of people and their allegiance isn't to Caesar, it is to this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus who claims to be the Christ, the Messiah. And so they began to call them Christians. It was first used in Acts chapter 11 as a derogatory term in Antioch. There are those, there are those people that belong to Christ. Now in Acts chapter 26, Herod Agrippa II uses the term in speaking at the trial of the Apostle Paul. And he says, Paul, do you think in such a short time you can convince me to become a Christian? That you can become, convince me to become a follower of Christ, one who belongs to Christ? Now, keep in mind that 1 Peter is written much later than those events in the book of Acts. This is the third time that the word Christian is used. And it is believed that by this time in history, it had begun to be used in a more positive sense and was even being embraced by the followers of Jesus, by the believers and the disciples. They were embracing the name Christian. In the Baker New Testament commentary, they had a specially good section where it said this, by this time, in the time that Peter wrote, especially, especially the Gentiles who were coming to Christ were embracing this new name, this name Christian. And then in that commentary it says, by the time the persecution of Nero breaks out, many Christians who suffered subsequently died, many martyrs, before their death, confessed boldly these words, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. John MacArthur writes this, Christian was not a name first assumed by believers themselves. Instead, because it was originally a deris derisive designation, Given them by the world, it was associated with hatred and persecution. But watch this. He says, it has become and should remain the dominant and beloved name by which believers are known, those who belong to Christ. And that's what you're saying when you say, I am a Christian. Now, I know that term has been watered down and so broadly used almost to lose its meaning sometimes, but it is a precious title. I am a Christian. And Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Jesus has never been ashamed of you. And may you never be ashamed of him, but let him glorify God in that name. Christian, glorify God in that name. Now, when we talk about the name, the name of Christ, we're not talking about the letters J-E-S-U-A-S, J-E-S-U-S or C-H-R-I-S-T. We're not just talking about letters or a name. That isn't why they were being opposed. Name came to refer the entirety of Christ's person and work. The everything that we could apply to Christ's person and work, that is what we mean by the name of of Jesus. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are praying according to 
and in alignment with the entirety of everything about his person and his work. In fact, I read there was a time in church history where Jesus simply was synonymous with the Christian faith. If you said Jesus, you were talking about the Christian faith. And then he says something interesting. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That is an important term here. That could probably be an entire sermon in and of itself. If we are to endure fiery trials, if we are to suffer in the midst of a growingly secular and hostile culture, if we are to stand for that name, if we are to identify with him, then we must allow judgment to begin in the church. God uses fiery trials to discipline us and to purify us, even as I mentioned earlier. Make sure you belong to Christ, number one. Number two, make sure that you are growing in him, that you are growing in the Holy Spirit and make sure that your trust and confidence is in him and not in something else and not in this world. This is not a judgment for sin per se because our sin was taken care of at the cross. This is a judgment. So I want to make a distinction between judgment and punishment. Punishment is what was taken care of at the cross. We will not be punished one day for our sins, but we are in essence being judged in the sense of chastisement and discipline. Because folks, if you're dabbling in sin, if there's conflict among us, if we are at each other's throats, we will not be able to stand and identify with him. If we can't even get along with each other, how are we going to be a witness to this world? How are we going to make a bold stand in this secular culture? That's the thought here. And so constantly, constantly, individually, as families and as a church, we must be willing to say it is time. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And when you turn on your television set and, or you get on the internet and look at those news websites and you see a rapidly growing or a culture that is rapidly growing more secular and more, more hostile, make sure your own life is pure. First thing to do, is let judgment begin with you. And so Peter says, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, and it means you can't be saved by your own works, the only reason you're saved is by the grace and mercy and pity of God upon your life. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And you know what those are? They are two open-ended questions. He never responds to them. Because you, are, as the reader, are supposed to respond to them. If judgment begins with us, you know what's going to happen to the ungodly and the sinner? They're going to be punished in hell forever and ever. If we're scarcely saved, what will happen to those that aren't saved? They will be punished. And here's the thought. It's time for judgment to begin with us because we are the bearers and ambassadors of Christ. We hold and share the gospel message, not only locally, but around the world. 
And if we aren't doing it with purity and holiness, we will suppress the very message that people need to hear. Because if judgment begins with us, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the ungodly and the sinner? Jesus said this, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I, I'm just amazed at how the Word of God speaks to our present culture. Wide is the gate. Folks, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate, narrow the road, it leads to life, only a few find it. So the cry of scripture is enter through the narrow gate, enter through the narrow gate. Make sure you've entered through the narrow gate. The second thing that suffering does is it causes us to examine ourselves. Third. Let your suffering lead you to a deeper trust and confidence in God's sovereign will. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Great verse. First of all, make sure you're suffering according to God's will. Make sure you're suffering because you identify with Christ. But let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Here's another interesting note this morning. In the New Testament, the only time God is referred to as creator with a capital C is here in 1 Peter 4. Isn't that interesting? In the entire New Testament, the only time the title creator is used for God in the New Testament is right here in this chapter. And I loved what one writer said. He said throughout the New Testament, because the title creator is used all the time in the Old Testament, only once in the New Testament. And that's because in the New Testament, it is always Im assumed, implied, and inferred that God is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all of life. It's just assumed by all the believers because of their knowledge of the Old Testament. But he says, if you're going to suffer, you suffer according to God's will, entrust your souls to your faithful creator. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said this. He said, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Do you know that's exactly the phrase that is used here? Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Peter is saying, when you suffer, say, Father, into your hands I commit myself. My life is yours. And then he says, and keep doing good while doing good. I love that. While you're suffering, while you're trusting God with all of your heart, keep doing good. Don't hide yourself somewhere. Don't develop a fortress mentality. Don't think it's just me and my family and we're going to hide out. No, go about doing good wherever you go. How practical. If you suffer according to God's will, trust God 
and go about doing good anywhere and everywhere that you go. Verse 19 is the pinnacle of the book of 1 Peter. This whole section, as I mentioned earlier, is the summit section. This verse is the pinnacle. In other words, verse 19 is referring to the entire first four chapters. Based on the whole first four chapters, therefore, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Folks, it is time. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God in our own hearts, in our own lives. For if we are to suffer well, if we are to suffer well, if we are to suffer for the glory of God, if we are to suffer unashamed for Christ, we must believe, we must believe that God is sovereign over every detail of our lives. We must. We must believe that he loves us with an everlasting love. We must believe that no suffering ever touches us until it is first filtered through the hands and love of our Heavenly Father. We must believe that God is at work, even in our suffering, for his glory and for our good. So we fix our eyes on Christ. We keep our eyes focused on him alone and all that he means to us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the opposition you face in this culture and in this world. Rejoice that you get to share in Christ's sufferings. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you stand for the name of Jesus. And if you suffer according to God's will, trust him. Entrust your souls to your faithful creator and go about doing all the good that you possibly can. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be willing to suffer and help us to suffer with rejoice and help us to suffer for your glory. If anyone would live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul says, he will. He will suffer persecution. So Lord, as we endure for you in these times that we live in historically, help us never be ashamed of the one who died for us and saved us. The greatest name in all of the universe the name of Jesus, in which we always pray, amen.